Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Yeah, it's going good. I am um, just returning to normal body temperature of a human, um, Mm -hmm. having uh, worked outside at a market today in minus one temperatures and driving snow. And uh, that's not a lot of fun really like me an hour outside in snow is kind of oh yay it's snowing but like seven hours man that was uh that was pretty grueling um yeah i've i've i'm recording this podcast and operating the computer with my one remaining finger so Mm -hmm. uh you know (laughs) hashtag frostbite yeah i had to do that once when i was uh, much younger at, at school we had to do like a well we didn't have to we volunteered for this and it was a stupid idea but we had to do a um like a, a business uh thing for like six months you had to like create a, a a small business and try and like turn a bit of a profit with with seed money that essentially you just like asked your parents for a 100 quid or whatever and then you, you're trying to give a business were you running um, a pyramid scheme out of your school <laughs> Uh, kind of in the fact that we didn't make any money from it <laughs> no one got no one got their money back so it wasn't a very successful pyramid scheme but we uh we decided we would make candles right and so it was lots of like mass producing candles and then we sold them from a stall on uh leicester market or leicester high street rather um where they just had this this day where all the people who were taking part in this business project scheme thing um, all got their own little stores and set up and uh, we had to do that for like seven or eight hours of just standing around a bunch of 17 year olds trying to sell our poorly made candles <laughs> this, this sounds like the weirdest thing I've ever heard, I really want to get into this Like, I'm also envisaging some kind of fight club scenario where you're mining the kind of fat stores of a liposuction facility for the, the, the kind of uh, the, the materials for these candles and then selling them back to the same people with a vanilla scent I mean we could have done that. I think we probably would have. We would have seen a bit more of a profit purely because of our R and D time, which involved kind of buying all of the ingredients for candles and like trying uh, over many months to kind of perfect what is something that people have been doing for like literally thousands of years with no problem. But we <laughs> we we struggled with the whole process. Yeah, they um, cracked the candle pretty early. And like they're teaching mm-hmm. kids to code these days, but really who's getting into <laughs> candle making? Yeah, it was very, very backwards looking of us. Uh and that's that's why I had to take remedial IT classes in when I was uh, in like doing A levels. Mm. Uh well, actually that was more because I did business studies because it sounded more fun and they said I wouldn't have to do IT. Right. And then when I went in to do A-levels, they were like, oh, do you have any kind of like IT certifications? I said, well, no, but I did a business studies GCSE and I said, no, you can't, you can't do graduate unless you have some sort of IT certification. I was like, great, I wish you told me that because then I could have you know, just done fucking IT instead of having to, for half a term, having to go and like use it one of my three periods to go and do basic Excel spreadsheet stuff so that they could eventually give me a uh, uh so they could eventually just give me a certificate saying yeah you're fine mm. have, have, jog, you made jog any, on. have you made any candles since no but i have made spreadsheets so at <laughs> least that came in handy right yeah when you described it you're like your school project involved making <laughs> candles i just couldn't 
like instantly thought you might be a vampire. <laughs> and like you went to school in the 1800s, and that was you know they gave gave you young boys a, a halfpenny and said go and go and find the ingredients for a candle and see if you can turn a modest profit at Leicester Market. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it was kind of like that, but I mean Leicester Royal Leicestershire is the 1800s basically in many ways. Um, mm. cer- certainly, the part of the county that I voted, I lived in, which voted sixty six thirty three Brexit, Ugh. felt felt a little bit like that. Mm. Do you know uh, why little... you might have failed Ed, in your quest to make money from candles? Why burning the wick at both ends? Possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought you. Were, I thought you were going to say it was burdensome some EU regulations. Yeah, some kind of killjoys and bureaucrats says you, you know you've got to have a certain amount of wax content in a candle, and couldn't be I mean, a bendy candle. How did you make wax for your candle? Did you? Like, I mean, there's a lot of questions about candles, but like, how did, did you just? Because if someone told me to make a candle, I'd get a piece of string and then I would burn another candle and melt the wax onto that candle, and then wait for it to go hard, and then there you go. That's infinite candle. I mean, the laws of physics uh, dictate that some of that candle will kind of go into and be transformed into other energy through uh, the heating process. But yeah, that's how I do it. How do you make a candle, Ed? This is Im- this is edutainment. You've certainly given our listeners a kind of a, a, a nice life hack there. You know, <laughs> if you want, bed up a buying want... candles. <laughs> <laughs> Just buy one candle and a, and a ball of string. <laughs> uh, if I remember correctly, it literally was you just ordered big bags of um, wax crystals, essentially, and then you could kind of like melt them in a pot, and then you threw in like other ingredients like what you wanted it to smell like and then you kind of poured it all into the mold around the the candle string which obviously you'd pre-soaked in wax as well uh so well, it was obviously like, <laughs> yeah yeah uh so it's a really simple technique that you know a bunch of feckless 17 year olds were not that good at <laughs> I think uh, that's this week's episode on candles finished. Uh, we'll see if uh, something completely different next week. It was yeah. SMTV last week, candles this week. Where will our minds go? Yeah, this is uh, Ladybird has clearly sent me down a kind of a nostalgic kind of time hole to what it was like being uh, in rural last year in 2003. It's like, let's share all of the terrible stories mm. about mm. candles, about absinthe parties all the all the good stuff you are a vampire it was it was <laughs> it was like like uh like late 1800s france you were thinking of the absinthe mm. parties and candles yeah. you need to melt the sugar somehow i'm actually the vampire ledwin uh there's a, a whole series of books by anne rice loosely based on my life mm. i went to a house in um, like this is God, okay, we're on a slippery slope now, uh, which leads me to an interesting story. When I was uh, away uh, earlier this year, and uh, I was in New Orleans, and mm-hmm. uh, downloaded something I used to do a lot when we used to go to a new city. There was uh, kind of like a self-guided walking tour, and you would like uh, you just download it, and it would say, "Go to this point. Here's a something," and it would tell you a fact about it, and then say, "Walk down the road, turn left," and then you'd be at another thing, and whatever and i kind of found myself in the i think it's called the garden district in new orleans which is Mm -hmm. where a lot of famous people lived in fancy houses and we were stood outside Anne rice's house and then a massive Mm. thunderstorm started and like as in it was terrifyingly loud it was right in the the the, the rainy season and um then we walked to sandra bullock's house um she wasn't in and then uh, john goodman's house and Mm. uh, at that point we were way too scared like so i very nearly died 
being huddled under a tree with my wife outside John Goodman's house, being struck by lightning on a self-guided walking tour through New Orleans, which uh, really shouldn't have been taking place outside in mm. that kind of weather. But those those three houses are on the same street. Um, I think uh, uh, Eli Manning and uh, Peyton Manning's dad, the right, Archie yeah. Manning, yeah, he lived on the same street as well. It was quite a street, Ed, quite a street. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine of those three, I, I, I like to think that John Goodman would let you in. Mm. And just be very gregarious, but then also like start screaming about you with the life about the life of the mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would be a terrifying dinner guest. We've just spent eight minutes talking about absolute <laughs> bollocks, but um, it is a podcast. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of what you sign up for. Mm. Yeah, come for the movies, stay for the candles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, new slogan, new year, new slogan. <laughs> yeah, new podcast, uh, new danger. What's that the tagline from? Or That's uh, New Labour, New Danger, the conservative uh, tagline from the 1997 election, Ed. You should have known that. If you, if you, weren't in, you had your, your nose in candle-making books, you would, have, you would have probably noticed. Yep, yep. Uh, let's talk about some, some more up-to-date news. Than yeah, let's. Election campaigns from 20 years ago. So uh, one of the main stories um, of this week, this is kind of uh, really an addendum to something we were talking about last week when we said that Brian Singer had been fired from making the Queen biopic or the Freddie Mercury biopic. And we kind of mentioned that maybe some news about him was going to come out. And yeah, that happened. Uh, You know, there were uh, uh, revelations about him being uh, sued for sexual assault against a then 17-year-old in 2003. Uh, This is... And also this kind of has brought up to the surface a lot of previous claims about him uh, involving young actors, uh, including on the set of uh, Apt Pupil, where supposedly he got a bunch of, like, young boys to strip naked uh, for a scene that then didn't make up in the movie or something. Like, there's lots of... There have been lots of stories about Brian Singer that have been out in the ether for a very long time. And, you know, when all the revelations about Kevin Spacey came out, uh, a lot of people on Twitter, people like um, Ira Madison III, who's a kind of a uh, a gay writer who uh, has kind of been writing about a lot of this sort of stuff um, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, he and, and many others were like saying, you know, when's, when's the other shoe going to drop for Brian Singer? And uh, the shoe is very much dropped at this point. Oh yeah, um, and I think when we recorded last week, he had just did he say that he had had some health problems and had dropped off the set. I think is that what happened, yes. and then the very next day he'd been fired for inappropriate behaviour, which was like you know something that you know, kind of monstrous film director parody behaviour, throwing things at the actors. I think he threw mm. something at Remy Malik um, and was you know generally acting like an absolute div. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it just—it's just kind of the slow comeuppance. It's almost as if he knew it was coming and kind of went down in, in uh, went down swinging, but uh, hit nothing. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I've kind of said it for the last few weeks now. Um, this, you know, cleaning house is uh, cathartic, and uh, it's uh, one more for the bonfire, I guess. Yeah, it definitely, and and it also is one of those ones where the most recent claim against him prior to that was in 2014, I think, around the time that Days of Future Past was coming out. But it was, I think it's very indicative of how things have shifted now in the, the, and, you know, an accusation of sexual assault against a prominent director came out at the point at which he was most visible because he was promoting a new movie and then literally disappeared and no one talked about it. 
mm-hmm. and then he went and made another movie and has been like doing lots of other work since and now is very much like oh yeah these these claims are being treated with a lot more seriousness and um uh, and scrutiny than i think they were being given before where it was very much even though we're not in like the 30s where studios could like so control the narrative and kind of kill stories whenever they wanted you you do get the sense that because a lot of the journalism around uh film much like also journalism around politics you know a lot of it is about access and if mm-hmm. people are writing overly negative stories or pursuing things that people in power don't want you to see it to pursue then they'll just take access away from you and then what that should say to journalists is like hey you need to like work harder and try and work around this but a lot of publications in the past have been like okay we just won't touch this uh and you know it's nice that uh if at least at this particular point in time that that is not what's happening people are being willing to go after stories that otherwise would not be tackled hmm yeah uh, another big story, and this is a really big story in terms of the media landscape of 2017, is that the news that Disney are looking into qu- acquiring 20th Century Fox, which has been kind of mooted for a few weeks and it's kind of flared up, is uh, very close to happening. They will buy off the film division, uh, and obviously that means that they get you know the rights to all Marvel characters that Disney don't currently own. They'll get all of the uh, rights to Star Wars they don't currently own because I don't think they own the rights to the original movies mm-hmm. um, and like that's from like that's one half of the reaction to that is is you know the geek culture reaction of like oh my god we're going to get X-Men in the MCU Arr! which is like fine people can be happy about that if they want to I'm not here to kind of uh, dissuade anyone from being passionate about things but like from a business point of view it's, it's fucking horrible <laughs> in terms of the reduced competition and Disney becoming a greater monopoly of of film culture at a time when the ability to get and distrib- make and distribute a, a movie is becoming smaller and smaller. Mm, it's almost like the last time Hollywood had this this problem with um, um, studios having a monopoly, uh, which was um, back in the fifties, where you know studios used to own. The stars they used to own the the production they used to own the distribution they used to own the the, the theaters and and the monopolies commission stepped in and said, "Do you know what I mean? This ain't going to happen anymore." The Paramount decree, um, mm. um, it kind of almost feels like we're now slipping back towards the, the fact that Disney are going to own all the properties, they're going to bankroll all the properties, they distribute all the properties through Buena Vista, um, then they are also going to have the means of of, um, of like distribution in the sense that they're running their own streaming services. So mm. it's like, I'm not really sure where the, the, the monopoly rules are aren't being kind of breached here. I mean, it also says a lot that the 20th Century Fox are in a position of uh, struggling so much that they are considering selling. And I didn't know that. I kind of just assumed that all the big studios were in kind of perennially rude health, might have slightly worse years than 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 the than others. But I didn't think they were so bad that they would think, oh, we'll just sell off our entire film division um, and everything we have the rights to, to Disney who do not need the money. Uh, my my sense of it is more that specifically that they're one of the few studios that don't have a consistent big franchise mm-hmm. that can kind of buoy them up. Um, they have the X-Men, which has kind of 
fallen a little out of favour. The the last one, Apocalypse, didn't do all that well. Um, and obviously the Fantastic Four has been a debacle twice over now. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So they don't really have anything that they can consistent, consistently fall back on and they don't have the thing that Universal have. Like, Universal, are in some ways, are one of the, the only studio other than Disney that can really kind of say this, which is that, you know, they have the, the Fast and Furious franchise, which is like a massive tempo release where you can put one out and pretty much guarantee you're going to get a, you're going to earn a billion dollars at the box office mm-hmm. and they but they also put a lot of money into like smaller stuff so you get a year like what 2014 when lucy came out and like that was a movie that cost them 20 million dollars and it made like 400 million worldwide or something so they diversify or get out another one they put out you know they they manage a better balance and fox doesn't really have that at all they don't have something a big tent pole that can you know fulfill the role of a tent pole which is to prop up to kind of be the thing that everything else gets to exist under but they also don't make good choices in terms of the smaller stuff so them and paramount are both kind of suffering in a similar way but paramount at least has the tom cruise connection and mission impossible their franchise to kind of fall back on mm, yeah and it's it is unusual. Oh, I'm not surprised, but like, like you say, the two sides of 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 the reactions to it. One being, oh, we're going to see the unaltered Star Wars. Oh, we're going to see the X Men in the MCU. Mm. Oh, all of a sudden, Disney owns the Alien franchise. Like, that is what everyone's been leading with, rather than this is could be really bad news. Mm. Um. I mean, and Disney have kind of got a lot of goodwill, I guess, from what they've done with Lucasfilm, which is obviously make things for the fans and and kind of restore a lot of confidence that fans had lost from the kind of the Star Wars prequels times um, by putting out kind of a lot of content. But they're not doing it for their health. They're doing it because they're seeing it as a... It is a literal cash cow that they can milk... Uh, for an eternity and they will milk it and now everything will be part of that cash cow and it's it's just not healthy for 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 hollywood no it's not healthy commercially because it means that they get to dominate even more and the other studios kind of wither and they maybe like they then have to sell off their properties to disney and then disney owns everything which i don't think will eventually happen but it's certainly like that's the nightmare scenario is that no one can make a decent sized movie unless Disney's involved mm-hmm. um, but also just like artistically it's better when you have a lot of studios who can put out movies at lots of different levels that are competing for talent that can offer people different things mm-hmm. you know it's it's good even though it's ridiculous that like when Quentin Tarantino was shopping around his Manson movie that like he went to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers were like they welcomed him with like loads of 60s vintage cars and stuff you know like to kind of sway him over which is like a ridiculous stunt that doesn't work but it's good to have like studios competing for for different properties and being willing to kind of offer you know people different levels of freedom to make their movie and different levels of budget if you just have like one or two studios doing it then people have less options Mm. um and that's that's one of the reasons why like American indie film, even though distribution remains like an absolute clusterfuck, like there are so many like small and mid level distributors now, so that people who want to make like small low budget movies have lots of options. Like um, 
I'm uh, I'm getting lots of screeners at the moment for movies that came out in 2017, and there's a distribution distribution company called Neon, mm-hmm. who have only just kind of really started up this year, and they've got their their fingers on a couple of movies on like I Tonya, The Bad Batch, uh, which was the Anna Lily Amapore movie that no one seemed to like. Mm. Um, that went Colossal. straight to straight to Netflix over here. Yeah. So, but they 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 put out like a really nice packet of like six of the movies they did this year in like a nice hardbound booklet, and it was just like, and I know A twenty four do a similar thing, and it's just nice knowing that there are companies out there who are springing up who are like, okay, we're going to take a chance on a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. and see how it all shakes out, um, and like the fewer big studios you get, the less willing they are to take a risk on something kind of big and strange, like you know. If there were fewer studios, then maybe Warner Brothers wouldn't take a risk on something like Dunkirk, mm. like which is not a movie I love as much as some people, but it's like a big, bold experimental movie to make for like a hundred million dollars, and you can do that because studios are like, okay, we'll, we'll take a risk on it. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, if you've got a company that is risk averse. Mm. Um, generally as part of their their kind of business strategy they just give people what they want and make sure they keep coming back for more it sounds a lot like a heroin dealer <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, then that suddenly buys up everything then uh, you're just going to get a lot of stuff that's just endlessly going to be ultimately beige um, and it, it, it just can't be a good deal for anyone it's not creatively mm. it's not commercially and but it, I mean it's probably going to happen um I don't know how 100% sure it is like I say it's just been talk that just won't go away at the moment um yeah. but yeah I'm not thrilled about it no neither am I uh, I'm also not thrilled about Jurassic World 2 the trailer Segway. for which <laughs> yeah the trailer for which debuted this week uh and um I have to say I wasn't aware of what the premise of Jurassic World 2 was prior to watching the trailer I'm still not entirely clear but um, I've been listening to a lot of the podcast Blank Check with Griffin and David, which is a very good, not to plug our much more successful competition, it's a very good um, film podcast. And one of the terms they're fond of is uh, to describe a movie as uh, sweaty, meaning mm-hmm. a movie that is trying much too hard to justify certain aspects of its production and plot. And Jurassic World 2, in justifying why exactly these characters are going back to this island, it feels like a very sweaty movie in those terms. Yeah, um, I wanted to talk about the trailer because um, I watched it and I kind of felt exactly like you. I am none the wiser as to <laughs> why, like if, okay, I, I will just ask you this question as a, as a kind of sane person. is like, <laughs> would you like to go to an island full of dinosaurs where the last time people were there, everyone died? So the answer is probably no. But then if I said if I said if it was erupting at the same time, mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh, yeah, probably I'll probably give that a hard pass. But then there's and the thing is, it's kind of said and I kind of thought it was leading to some punchline. Mm-hmm. But then it got into the bit where um, Bryce Dallas Howard is saying, oh, yeah, but you raised that velociraptor from birth. She want to see you. And it's just like, what? <laughs> So we're going back here because he's got some kind of emotional attachment because they want to rescue dinosaurs off an island that's exploding. Yeah, I mean, it's not even like you're saying, like, the last time people were there, the last time anyone was there, people died. It's like, would you like to go back to the island where the last time you were there, (laughs) everyone died? It's not just like, hey, there's this crazy mission people want to send you on. It's literally, hey, you know how 
you were here and the dinosaurs ex- escaped and killed everyone and you were mm. fighting for your life we want you to go back to save the dinosaurs because the island is erupting which also makes you wonder why did they build this park on this island like why <laughs> in the first place if they knew there was a chance of an active volcano going off yeah um, I, I mean I, I like I don't want to bring up Jurassic Park 3 as a mm-hmm paragon of plot logic and character but they at least have to trick sam neill's character into going back to the island because mm. he remembers what happened the first time but um one of the things i noticed about the trailer is it's incredibly strange like the rhythm of the cutting of it the the sound uh the the kind of the the uh the scoring of it like the fact that it kind of touches on these plot beats but then kind of just shows an image next which has nothing to do with it mm-hmm. um and it's like kind of really confusing and like all this leads me like because uh the guy j.a bayona has directed mm. it he directed the uh the orphanage which is a fucking amazing movie and the monster um, calls which was pretty good and a monster calls it yes absolutely which i've not seen yet but here is marvelous um big fan of the book but yeah it's like it it's got to be more interesting than the premise of oh this again Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and we've managed to somehow rope Goldblum into being in it again. Yeah, I mean, he's going through a, I was going to say, a, a renaissance, but he's never really been away. No, even when he was just in, like, did you ever see The Weeknd? The movie mm, he I, did with... Did uh, it's a movie with Jim Broadbent and uh, the... The woman who played the, I believe, played the the Fears of Critic, critic in uh, Birdman, uh, who's like a, a wonderful British actress. And I can't Andrea Riseborough? No, no, an, an older woman than uh, Andrea Riseborough. Oh, God, no. No, no idea. Sorry. Oh, I, I'll, I'll try and uh, remember it, or by which I mean look on IMDb. But it was like it was like a lovely little movie where they play like an English couple who, whose marriage is going for kind of like a, a rough spot, and they go back to Paris where they went when they were younger. And Jeff Goldblum's like their old friend who's like ridiculously successful, and who Jim Broadbent has a clear dislike, uh, dislike of. Um, and uh, it's a really it's a really good movie. But yeah, like even when he wasn't showing up in big movies, he's one of those people who's just been constantly acting even if it is in like mordecai oh shit fuck he's in that oh oh don't say that they just oh those that word just brings out a pavlovian reaction to in me lindsey duncan is the person i was thinking of oh okay. okay but um yeah also i think i'm i'd be willing to bet like 10 quid that Jeff Goldblum's involvement is entirely those court scenes where he's talking. <laughs> like, I can't imagine that he's going to be, like, too heavily involved, but they have got him back because of that, like, uh, legacy sequel thing or the nostalgia thing. I think, like, oh, my God, we got someone back from the earlier movie, and it's not just B.D. Wong, who is a great mm. actor. I love B.D. Wong, but, like, he wasn't one of the principles of Jurassic World. Like, mm. him being cast in the previous one literally was, like, we need someone from the previous movie and like most of the cast are either unavailable, not interested or dead. Mm. I'd like to see the courtroom proceedings in Jurassic World 2 um, <laughs> kind of reach a, uh, a crescendo as someone kicks open the door at the back, the big double courtroom doors. Picture this, Ed. Everyone mm-hmm. in the gantries like turns around to look and it's Samuel L. Jackson with, like, one, like, with a prosthetic <laughs> arm, the one he lost in Jurassic Park, and he comes back to solve uh, the problems of the dinosaur island that's currently exploding but using exclusively IT. 
Mm. I thought you were going to say, and suddenly people come in carrying sacks full of letters to dinosaurs. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and saying, why do we have to save these dinosaurs? Yeah, that would be awesome. And then the whole thing is like a, a kind of uh, an environmental parable mm. um, about protecting uh, nature. Yeah, but yeah, it's just the... It could be good. I like J.A. Bayona. The movie looks a little better than Jurassic World did, but mm. only in the scenes that don't involve CGI. Like, the scenes where it's Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt in a bar together, you think, oh, this looks, like, warm, and they're real people in a real space. And then as soon as it's, like, dinosaurs rampaging, it's like, oh, this looks like shit again. Mm. Um, they've uh, somehow, technology about di- around dinosaurs has got worse in 24 years. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, mm. But, yeah, I don't have high hopes for it unless it's super goofy like uh, Jurassic Park 3 which at the very least has a moment where a uh, raptor pretends to be stuffed in order to then scare someone <laughs> which which for me was like okay in the first movie they learned how to open doors by the third movie they've just learned how to fuck with people and you got to mm. respect that yeah yeah i mean they use problem solving intelligence Ed. it does say mm-hmm. in the film yep one of the other things about the, the Jurassic World trailer too that was kind of interesting as a example of where the kind of the hype culture um, currently stands was the fact that we had multiple teasers for it. Like mm. over the days leading up to it, it had been like, oh, teaser coming on Thursday, teaser coming on Thursday. And then there was an installation in, in London, I think, where they had a projection on the side of a building saying when the trailer was coming. And we also had that with the official first trailer for ready player one as opposed to like the trailer they showed at comic-con last year where uh there was a kind of a big facebook live event where they were streaming and telling people oh the trailer's coming and then they had a q a with ernest klein and it's like i miss the days when trailers were just a thing that you suffered through <laughs> before the main event I, that they weren't a thing that people got uh, ridiculously hard about online I think it'd be really fun, like, if J.J. Abrams for Star Wars Episode Nine was just like, do you know what, fuck you guys. We're going <laughs> to, like, no one doesn't know this film is happening. You already know mm. when it's coming out. It's had a release date since, like, the Disney merger was signed. Just like, right, do you know what? It opens on this date. I'll see you there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just no, a title this, card. Yeah, no press release, no title announced for it or anything. You just you just buy a ticket and you turn up. Yeah, I could see it appearing like the credits in a Woody Allen movie where it just lists everyone in alphabet, alphabetical order with a bit mm. of a, a jazz uh, rearrangement of the Star Wars theme and then just December 2019 or whatever it's coming out. Is it in December or are they still keeping a summer release date? Uh, Someone won for um, Han Solo, Solo, but Abrams uh, said he would take nine if they pushed it back to December. Which is, it makes sense because December is the time you go and see Star Wars. Yeah, now they feel like a a Christmas tradition at this point. Mm. With with the third one mere hours away in terms of like many hours, like at least 96 hours. It's like four sleeps. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in other news about... uh, kind of a, a space franchise we also got the news that quentin tarantino maybe is gonna hold off his retirement in order to make a star trek movie which is one of those things that he's said in the past because he's a big star trek fan and he's always said that he would like to direct one but it's always just been kind of like idle chatter and when he said it again this week i thought oh yeah he's kind of throwing out that old sore again but then like the next day it's like oh you know a script is coming together and he's like talking about how it's going to be r-rated and all this sort of stuff i was like oh 
I guess this isn't just kind of like an idle thing that he's throwing out there. This is actually something that he wants to do. Uh, and I'm kind of mixed on it because I'm not sure we need kind of a gritty Quentin Tarantino take on Star Trek. I think we, in fact, we need like a more fun, optimistic version of it. But, uh, and, but you know, they talked about how like he's going to get Patrick Stewart back to play John Luke Picard, which would be fun. But it all just seems like a really weird, just kind of like remix of adverbs <laughs> and like things that should just would get thrown together by a bunch of film geeks but shouldn't happen because there's no way all those things when combined would actually be any good mm. it, i almost feel like someone said oh people reacted really positively to the 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 scene in star trek discovery where they said fuck mm. who could who could we get in to capitalize <laughs> on this this kind of new swearing uh, the new profane star wars uh, star trek uh, swear track um yeah um it's like I, I mean I, I if he wants to do it then more power to him but i mean he did direct an episode of csi mm. um so he he will do kind of literally anything he's interested in um but i mean i, I can't really see how it's going to work uh his sensibilities up against the the star trek world an r-rated star trek movie i, I think it's gonna have to cost a lot mm. r-rated movies that cost a lot of money pretty risky um yeah i'm not sure it'll happen if it does happen then i'll probably watch it and i'll be confused but you know it's a funny thing to come out of retirement for Mm, and it does raise the question of is it going to be like a new continuity are they going to use the pre-existing cast and then there'll be time travel to get picard in there which you know fine but in a time when that that is like the thing that could be vaguely exciting about it because you know in a time when studios are trying to create these interconnected franchises and they're all like a slave to continuity, it'd be nice if they just went, yeah, this one takes place in a different timeline. You don't need to worry about it. In much the same way that you know DC are talking about having like Batman movies that we might have different casts and seven Joker movies, each with a different Joker, each more insufferable than the last. <laughs> um, at least that's yeah, at least that's something different. At least it's not something where they've kind of been continuity or canoned to death over it. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm just kind of just whole, like wholesale skeptical on, mm. on the whole affair. Like if I, I don't believe it will happen, but if it does happen, I'm not sure I'm into it. No, um, same. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll see how that one pans out. We'll keep you updated mm. listeners. Yep. Um, from one or tour to another, mm. let's talk about the disaster artist Yay. and, the cult of the room now for people who don't know uh the room was a legendarily terrible movie released in 2003 played on one theater in la earned about two thousand dollars in its first specifically eighteen hundred dollars in its first weekend played for two weeks in order to try and qualify for the academy awards um did not get nominated that year um shame yeah, didn't even get any writing votes as far as I'm aware, which, mm. uh, you know, that would have been that would have been a hell of a campaign. Um, but uh, over many, many years, it developed into a cult favourite amongst kind of L.A.'s uh, kind of hip set. You know, lots of famous people started discovering the movie and would go to these these sold out screenings that played for, for years and years and years. The movie became kind of a, a worldwide sensation. You know, uh, the, the director, star, producer, writer Tommy Wiseau went out into the world kind of going to screenings and promoting it uh a few years ago his co-star greg sistero with uh, uh the writer tom bizell wrote a book about the making of this terrible movie and the cult surrounding it 
and the uh, the insane production that you know how this this movie came to be, and that book has now been adapted into a movie by a, another uh, director of questionable skill, James Franco, but mm. uh, and with a star-studded cast. Some would say two star-studded because some of the the people that get in it are a little distracting, but uh, it's a a kind of a, a very warm-hearted celebration, I think, of a film. Uh, and a man who have improbably acquired a fairly significant amount of su- of success and fame, yeah, or infamy, <laughs> perhaps is more correct. Yeah, and in the spirit of keeping our um, streak of having guests on the show alive, mm-hmm. um, I sat down and talked to friend of the show Louise Lacornu about both the room and the disasterist, and this is what she had to say. First of all, I guess it would be uh, remiss of me to not ask where you first encountered um, the wonderful world of The Room. Well, it wasn't the film. Right, okay. So um, there is a website called Newgrounds, Mm -hmm. which has flash games. Right. And uh, I used to go on there and just play random point-and-click adventures. Mm -hmm. And there was one that came up, and it was number one, all week this was back in 2010 mm-hmm. and so i thought okay it was called the room tribute and i was like okay fine i'll have a go and it it was this most bizarre story of this guy this little sprite with just long hair and he was just going around laughing and there was a section where you threw a football and some guy kept j- coming into uh, the house unannounced and going, hi, another. and I was just thought, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Um, and I completed it, mm. and it was completely random. Um, and so I, okay, well, I need to have a look and see what this is a tribute to, uh, and f- found out about the room. But I didn't see it um, until four years ago. Wow. So it was a good three years later. So it lived in your your memory as a kind of a weird point-and-click RPG. Yeah, basically. Uh, and there was a whole section where you had to fight Chris R in the game. Um, and so I went into seeing the film. My friend uh, put it on when I went round, uh, had a few drinks. And he was like, have you ever seen The Room? I was like, no, but I need to. <laughs> <laughs> I just never had an opportunity up until that point because at that point I didn't even go to the Prince Charles Cinema. I was living in London, but I just hadn't gone. Um, and watched it, and <laughs> it was uh, phenomenal, really, is the only word I can... Because that covers all bases of whether it's good or not. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it is a genuine phenomenon of some kind, Um in the way that like a landslide is, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, it's a force of nature. That's very uh, like kind of circuitous route to finding out about the room. Um, it kind of, yeah, I'm, I kind of had to review it. I was asked mm. to review it for a, like a, I used to write for a heavy metal website, even though I wasn't even okay. talking metal at all. Um, but they had, they had a, we all need a weigh in. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, everyone needs a leg up. Um, 
but my friend was a um, the, the kind of the features editor, and he was like, "Oh, let's do some film stuff." And then he just kind of asked people to submit stuff, and it was all kind of fairly uh, on brand with heavy metal um, and kind of like you know horror movie stuff and everything. But then someone said, "Oh, let's do a thing about bad bad movies." And they asked me to review this film that I'd kind of heard something about, but had no real idea what it was. And I'd say unlike 95% of the people who watched The Room for the first time, I was alone and sober. um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was quite something, but like I was immediately drawn in by its kind of almost otherworldly oddness. Um, Yeah. And yeah, I really worry about things like that when i heard that they were doing the disaster artist um i was really concerned that something like that a big hollywood movie with a-list stars and everything would in some way take away from the mystique take away a little bit about it like the more you find out about it the less interesting it is it's kind of like nice not to see behind the curtain that's a pun intended of a man who lived behind a curtain for a long time well i wasn't too worried about it Mm -hmm. Because mm-hmm. I um, I have the book. I haven't been able to complete it yet, um, but I've been working my way through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I saw it was James Franco, because I'd seen him talk about The Room before, mm. um, and he always had this kind of love and affection for it. And so when I found out he was actually making The Disaster Artist, I, I was absolutely more than fine. I was a, I was a bit concerned, possibly with how much it would take the piss. Mm. Um, because I do. I mean, I <laughs> I don't think it's the worst film. I, in fact, I, it grows on me every single time I watch it. It's awful, but it is it's it's leagues above other films. Absolutely leagues above other films. Mm. Um, and you do have an attachment to it and you do um, sort of take it into your heart and have it as this thing which you want to look after and cherish. And you'll you'll show other people, but you won't show other people, well, as far as I'm concerned, I don't show other people because I want them to take the piss out of it. I show them because this movie is brilliant. Mm. It it, It was made for a point of people who wanted to be stars and wanted to make something and put as much as they possibly could into this film. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it made sense or not <laughs> is another matter. Uh, but you know, so much went into it, and that's that's the thing I love about it. Especially now, especially having seen a disaster artist yeah, and and having it from that other perspective. Yeah, it's um, it's important to lose not to lose sight of the fact that it was no matter how hard it is to believe a well-intentioned endeavour <laughs> that whether the person who dreamt it up was, um, you know, kind of, he kind of understood what the intentions were or really had a grasp of any kind of reality is, yes. is another thing uh, altogether. But um, yeah, that is, that was a genuine concern. And, and like, it had been a concern of mine for a bit because um, like I, I've been involved with screenings of um, the room for, you know, the last few years now. Um, we kind of stopped maybe two years ago, um, but we kind of ended on a bad note. We got li- we got blacklisted by Tommy. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and it's because um, we got approached by a filmmaker who had made a documentary called A Room Full of Spoons. 
Okay. And um, it's about the room. Um, no one has probably seen it because it is currently caught up in like a legal quagmire because Tommy was always trying to sue the makers of the film. Um, and we had the UK premiere. Um, we'd shown the room several times before. And this guy had actually approached um, my kind of co-programmer, Ryan Finnegan, who uh, wrote the book, The Definitive Guide to the Room, uh, to ask if he wanted to be like a talking head on it. We were like, yeah, cool. Let us know when the film's finished and we'll maybe put it on because, you know, we had a cinema and we're allowed to kind of do what we wanted. And he did finish the film and he did ask us to show it. And we didn't get to see it beforehand. And it is a complete hatchet job on Tommy Wiseau. It starts off like being about a man who you know, loves Tommy Wiseau and is friends with Tommy Wiseau and Tommy Wiseau is in the film at the start and they're kind of making a documentary together. But then this guy essentially just goes to where he was from, finds out his real name and just sticks it, sticks it in the film. No! Yeah. No one needs to know that. Exactly. And it's like, it was really cynical and we all kind of felt a bit dirty afterwards and um, there's currently a, like legal proceedings going on about it and um, our, our film night is mentioned in the small print of the... Uh, of the lawsuit um, and of the, of the, in the defense of the, the filmmakers because they said it didn't affect Tommy's reputational earnings, which is true because no one's seen it and it's not a particularly great film. But um, but Tommy found out about it and blacklisted us from all kind of screenings in the future, which is weird given that the guy is so lax about collecting money from screenings or even bothering to follow up that they happened. Um, you know, that, that's neither here nor there. But that was my big concern about The Disaster Artist is that... Um, that it would it would take away something and they would like there's a weird thing isn't there when when there's a cult of something that there's this kind of weird ownership of it it's like you want people to see it but not too many they don't want no. to it. And like, it's, no. that's, that shouldn't be ever the case because it's not yours um but you do grow attached to things well um, you do i always question whether if someone goes oh uh are you you've seen the room should i watch it and i'll think okay well i'm going to go over every conversation we've ever had and judge your personality and your sense of humour um, in the space of three seconds and to make a snap judgment over whether I want you to watch the room or not. <laughs> and I've had that so many times with people. And I have, yeah, there's some people I have said, yeah, no, you, pr- yeah, no, you wouldn't like it. It's not really, it's not really a thing. It's a bit random. Yeah, no, it's, okay. It's, it is a <laughs> It's not. Um, and let's not beat around the bush. It is fucking terrible. So if you, if you go into it expecting something like, you know, a film. Yeah. <laughs> a plot. That, yeah, something that at least adheres to some of the rules of, of, of film grammar and, and language. Yeah. Then, you, you know, you're in for a, a rude awakening. Yeah. The, so The Disaster Artist is out now in cinemas. Um, and I've literally just seen it. You saw it a week ago. Um, how was it for you? I I was I I was so happy, mm-hmm. I was so absolutely happy. I went in livid because um, I I went to watch it at the Prince Charles, where mm-hmm. I've seen the room numerous times, um, and there was a bit of a nightmare trying to get in, uh, just because there were so many people. It's such a small cinema, yeah. So everyone stood outside for like half an hour in the freezing. So I got in, got a drink, and I'm like, this better be good. I'm livid. Everything's cold. And within the first five minutes of uh, the opening scene where Tommy goes down to the stage and is just rolling around, wailing, I was just in bits automatically. And then I just stayed. I had this smile on my face throughout the entire thing because it was just done so well. 
and James Franco was fantastic. Mm. Even yeah. his eye, down to the eye, it was just it everything. So yeah, everything just everything about him just felt really perfect. And um, when 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 someone is playing someone who is such a almost a caricature anyway, it's difficult for it not to be just a stupid impersonation. But he actually does manage to to mine some pathos out of him, I guess. Yeah. And Dave Franco was brilliant as well. Yeah, that's some great... Or that he might be, like, two feet shorter than Greg Sestero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are a lot of features out of uh, Dave Franco's just general physical makeup that uh, are missing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was, he was great as well. And there was some really good sort of... There were different um, cast members who I've just seen from things where they are just sort of supporting artists or they are uh, from TV series that no one ever, no one's ever heard of. So there were two people, uh, the script supervisor um, and Paul Shear. Paul, Paul Shear, the bald guy. Yeah, Paul Shear, the yeah. bald guy. And, um, one of the two owners of the studios, the guy who uh, played, um, with the beards. yeah. Jason Manzoukas. Yes. He plays Rafi and, um, Paul plays Andre in a TV show called the league, mm -hmm. uh, which I am absolutely obsessed with. It's absolutely brilliant, mm -hmm. but uh, you don't see them often. So when all these, so I saw, you know, um, you get all these characters, but uh, you get all these people who are often in different films, but then you get, um, a few others that just sort of appear and you're like, Oh, it's you. Oh, I like this more now because you're in it. Yeah. So, so that was very exciting. There's some great people in it. Yeah. Well, fact fans, uh, if, if like, it's really funny that you mentioned those people because Paul, Paul Shear and, uh, Jason Manzoukas and June Diane Raphael, who plays, uh, the actress who plays Michelle, um, they all host a podcast called How Did This Get Made, which is about bad movies. Oh really? Um, I mean they've been in a bunch of stuff anyway, those guys. But um, yeah, their casting is pretty deliberate because they they were kind of among the early champions of the room. Uh, and if you've never uh, 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 listened to how did this get made, it is brilliant. It's exactly what it says on the tin. They pick a film and they discuss how the fuck that got <laughs> to. Um, and they've they've done a couple on the room, I think. And they've, at the minute, I think their latest episode is they replay the old episode of the room. Uh, with Tommy and Greg on it, and then they bring on some of their like celebrity chums to kind of talk about it. They they normally get good guests on. It's a good podcast. I'd recommend it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you say, the, the the supporting cast is filled with um, actors and people who are obviously fans of the room. Cause yeah. The film starts with like uh, Talking Heads, um, not the band. I mean, I'm sure they do <laughs> like it, but uh, you got like J.J. Abrams, yeah. um, uh, Kristen Bell. Uh, Adam Scott and uh, people like that and uh, uh, who else is there Danny McBride all talking about how they saw it and and how it kind of got out which mm. is weird because when I first learned about the room when I kind of got sent this DVD to review it and I, I kind of googled it and I was like oh yeah um, Seth Rogen and uh, Kristen Bell separately in Hollywood would hold room viewing parties and it got around kind of the celebrity A-list circuit this kind of weird kind of patient zero type situation where someone would infect someone and then you, you immediately have to then tell someone else, yeah. which is part of the magic of it, which is, I mean, I've, I mean, we've done like screenings for kind of like two, 300 people at a time. And, and I always ask at the start of the screenings, how many people have seen it? And it's mm. always more than half yeah. of the people who keep their hands down. So it's like, there's a lot of virgins every time. And then they just have to bring someone to it to say, seriously dude 
<laughs> like it's not just a bad movie that's fun it is something that is beyond the realms of human comprehension <laughs> you do have to let go of a lot in order to watch it mm. um, yeah yeah i yeah it's just so it's just so good yeah, I mean, I've laughed more at the room than I have during, during any, any intentional, intentional comedy, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it never, it never fails. Like if you watch that in a room full of people, I mean, it's a bit hackneyed that you're like, oh, come to a screening with mm. people going to dress up in fancy dress. There'll be audience participation, and you know, everyone screams stuff out at certain times. And if you told me that, I'd be like, get fucked. I don't want to do it. It's like that whole thing, you know, yeah. when Tim in space is talking about Rocky Horror, and it's like. It's a it's a thing for repressed you know, forty year olds <laughs> called Keith who want to let go for the weekend. Like that is how my cynical brain would like kind of relate to it. But yeah, it's actually an incredibly joyous celebratory experience. And you have to be properly prepared. You have to have spoons. You do have to have spoons. You know, um, I have picked up thousands of spoons after screenings. It's not a glamorous job uh, hosting rep screenings no. around the country because you do have to sweep up a lot of spoons. Yeah, and top tip: don't sit at the front. Mm. Um, for your first time if you're going to go and see it in a big space because you will just be attacked just yeah, endlessly and, yeah no sporks keep no the, sporks uh, keep the edges rounded yeah watch the um, eyes do you find it weird that like whenever you first saw the room right and you were like shit that's amazing but it's also <laughs> I, I understand that it's a, an appalling yeah. artistic piece of work that now we're in a situation where a film about that is being hotly tipped during awards season. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you can understand why. It's mm. completely well made. And yeah. I'd be absolutely surprised if it didn't come away with something. I mean, it's already won some awards. Yeah, it's, it's picked up some awards in like critic circle stuff. But yeah. Like, it is, I mean, I think it's I mean, the fact that in... it's even in those is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like that's the thing. When you hear the you you hear James Franco's involved, and you're like, well, okay, this is going to go one or two ways. Yeah, <laughs> because that guy is he's uh, he's he, he doesn't mess around like down the middle. No, yeah, he'll either be amazing or dreadful. Yeah, yeah, but, oh, absolutely. Um, so yeah, he and so and it, it 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 did turn out to be you know a pretty decent movie, a, like a really good film that he's getting some good notices. But it kind of is weird. It kind of reminds me of um, it's going to be a very obvious comparison that people make. But um, Edward, the Tim Burton movie about Edward, who yeah. made dreadful, dreadful movies, um, and that taking someone whose abilities were, shall we say, limited, but using it as a uh, a way to kind of explore the joy of making film. Yeah. Because, I mean, and that's what comes across from James Franco's performance as Tommy. He is a force of nature and he is, you know, kind of onto himself, but he has a vision yeah. and he gets it up there. And he does it. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't not ordinarily happen for just general people who don't have secret money from jeans or yeah. wherever it's from. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm glad about is that after the debacle of Roomful of Spoons documentary um, um, where, you know, it's revealed where he got his money from, where he is from, how old he is, et cetera, et cetera, I'm really pleased that, and that that information is widely available. You can find that on the internet if you were so uh, inclined. But I'm really, really pleased that at the end of the movie, there's a title card that pops up and says, "No one knows how old he is. No one knows where he's from, and no one knows how he made his money." Well, it instantly instantly puts people off even looking. Yeah, and, really and well, people who wouldn't have ordinarily seen it anyway 
and might have just been interested in going to see it would just Mm go oh well that's a mystery then i guess let's go home (laughs) but but i think anyone who i mean i've i I hadn't even heard about the documentary um and i've got to be honest i don't want to know i don't need to know it's not information that i will ever try and and find out because i don't Mm. want to because it's tommy tommy's tommy when and you see a magic trick, my first my first reaction is always wow, not yeah. please tell me how you did it. Yeah, I'd rather enjoy the trick because I know I actually know it's a trick. It's not magic. Yeah. So we I, know he's not in his twenties when he makes the room. That's yeah, that that's... Was, I think what got one of the biggest laughs in my screening today was when Greg is leaving home and Megan Mullally comes out to kind of see <laughs> what strange man is taking away to Los Angeles, and he says, oh, I'm in my 20s, and she says, oh, I'm 14, and he says, happy birthday. Yeah, oh, that was <laughs> that beautiful. Got a massive laugh. Yeah, there was, so, there was a lot of really good timing in mm. delivery from him as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it would have been very easy for that performance, and with someone who has James Franco's slightly bizarre track record of, of doing... Um, should we say, uh, self um, kind of, uh, what's the polite way of doing this? Self-aggrandizing work yeah. um, that he might have gone over the top with that, which kind of would have worked, but he manages to rein it in quite well and and, yeah. and, re- and actually make Tommy very sympathetic, even though at times he does act monstrously. Oh God, yeah. I mean, when, when um, sections in the movie go to sort of like the other end of the scale, stop being funny and start to go into seeing Tommy being aggressive and mm-hmm. a, a prick to everyone he works with, turning up late, um, destroying his friendship, destroying, you know, trying to, destroying the movie in a way, stopping mm-hmm. it getting made. Um, it, you do sort of stop, because you do stop laughing. You notice mm-hmm. yourself stop laughing and you sit there and go, oh, oh shit, it's a, prick he's a fucking arsehole mm. oh mm. oh yeah i forgot about that <laughs> but yeah, it's done yeah. so well the mood the way yeah. the mood completely changes mm. and yeah, the, yeah, the way it's done in the film shifts yeah in its strides. yeah um and it's like i think the, the the big scene uh which is when they're filming the uh amazing sex scenes Oh um, yeah, where he is um, with the actress who plays the actress Juliette Danielle, the actress who actually plays her is Ari Grainer, who is um, probably of all the cast, she's the one who looks exactly like the actress she's portraying. Oh, she was brilliant. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I think one of my favorite favorite things about the entire film, The Disaster Artist, is as soon as the film finishes, the credits roll. But as they do, you have a side by side comparison oh. of. Um, the, the actual the actual shots from um, the uh, the room and then them recreating them and by word the attention to detail and oh it's brilliant is, is in, in, and I think my favourite bit of attention to detail about Tommy full stop is his commitment to wearing multiple belts yeah <laughs> yeah emphasise yeah, the butt left it in. you know yeah <laughs> exactly I, I mean <laughs> he is insistent on getting his ass in the film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Franco doesn't shy away from that. No, he doesn't. Um, but, it, I mean, yeah, it does It does a very, very great job of, like, humanising someone who could have been just, a, like, a comedy, yeah. like, you know, idiot. Um, but also kind of making the, the friendship between him and Greg in the movie actually, like, believable and something you're kind of pulling for. Yeah. 
yeah. even though one of the people in that, that relationship is is ultimately very destructive. Yeah, and he's so aware of it. Mm. You know, um, Greg is always so aware that he is hanging out with, a, you know, Frankenstein's monster, mm-hmm. um, which is why the end is always so nicely done and yeah go when they have their little chat outside and he goes back in and then has this whole this is my life moment mm, um yeah and i wonder if that was the moment that he decided that it, he would then non pretend it was the comedy that he had always intended yeah i i hope it i hope it's i hope that's exactly what happened i mean i'll find yeah. out when i finish reading the book mm. um yeah. <laughs> but yeah i mean you know They've carried on with this for so long now. You know, they go around to how many screenings, just turning up in different places, going to the screens together. They're doing it again um, at the Prince Charles in February, where they'll be mm. doing a double bill. Yeah. Um, it's just endless. Yeah. It's, I you... mean, if you're not on board, then you can't do this. You, you no. can't carry on with this forever. And so he must yeah. be now but there, there's also there's also a little something that like i mean that's that's the one thing about it that i have ne- I've never really got fully on board with the fact that he tommy this is mm. like is insistent that it's a black comedy um, <laughs> um which is you know just 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 admit that yeah it was you know but then again that is part of the the, the fun of like kind of going along with it i guess um but yeah, there's there's also I don't know if you've seen the neighbours, his kind of follow up. No, not yet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I very rarely tell people not to bother with things because I find that approach terrible. Like, but you know, people say, "Oh, have you seen this film?" And you say, "Oh, I saw it. Don't bother. It's terrible." Yeah. Like, it's up to you. You want to see it? That's great. But like, genuinely <laughs> consider it... not watching the neighbours. Oh, okay. Because um, it, it, I mean, it, it's uh, yeah, it's horrifyingly poor. <laughs> I think you'd probably go into it hoping it would have the same redeeming features that The Room does. But I think, mm. yeah, I would imagine that after seeing The Room, you just the, it, everything would just be like a, a remake of that, just in a different way. Yeah, it's it, it's it's got none of the naivety of the room. Yeah, none of, none of the, that, then that's the thing that's missing. Missing the the kind of the well intentioned. Let's make a Tennessee Williams play, um, but on screen. Um, and make it like it was directed by a mental patient. Yeah, um, is kind of what came out. Um, but yeah, the the, the neighbours is is kind of horrifying. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I we screened it down in Bristol. Uh, we were kind of guests of uh, the the Bristol Bad Film Club, and we and we came, went down and screened it there. And they screened it like three or four times a year, and kind of sell out huge screenings of it. So our friend who runs that a guy called Ty, he is actually taking Greg Sestero around the country doing screenings of the Disaster Artist and the Room. Yeah. Um, and it come, turns out that Greg Sestero is staying with him at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine having Christmas dinner with Sestero. That'd be fine. I'd do that. I'd have him round. Yeah. Yeah. Probably pass the eggnog, Greg. Yeah. Greg Nog. Greg Nog. Ah, ha, ha. brilliant. Yeah. Well, That's they've got a new fantastic. film out soon, haven't they? They have next year. Well, they, Best friends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, have you it's, read it's the that, premise of it? I read the premise. That, uh, Greg <laughs> showed the trailer. Uh, we did a live read of the. Room, oh really? Um, last February with Greg. Um, just after the disaster artist had played, I think at 
Sundance or South by Southwest, one of those festivals. Um, and he showed the trailer and everyone was good. It was a big, it was a secret. He was going to show it and he'd only shown it in Dublin, I think before then. And he, he screened it and everyone was like, yay. And then when you actually think about watching it, that's perhaps when the doubts <laughs> creep in. Because, you know, the idea of doing something semi-serious, but also plays entirely on the fact that you have to have seen The Room and kind of get it. Well, um, it's because it sounds exactly the same as The Room, but just mm-hmm. with a mortician. Yeah. Rather, <laughs> rather than just a guy who works in finance. Yeah. It's not doing anything to put pay to the Tommy Wiseau as a vampire room, is it? No, it's really not. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's kind of weird when when you do something like that once you're kind of tied to it forever, um, which is yeah, kind of really sad in a way. But also like you've got that like not many people are you know not many people are Denny from the room. No, <laughs> no. Which, which is a character that will baffle me till my dying day. Yeah, yeah. I just it always felt off. I wasn't. I was never sure about Denny. Um, yeah. I mean, but from everything I've kind of read about the actor who plays uh, Denny and everything, he was never sure about it either. He was, <laughs> he was just like, "What is? Is this Kyle fair. there? Like, <laughs> is, you know, how, is this a sixteen-year-old boy? He's got homework. But I'm in my mid twenties. I don't really understand what's <laughs> yeah. happening. Uh, He's got homework and, he, he looks and young, drugs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, homework yeah. and drugs. Homework <laughs> and drugs. That deadly yeah. combo. What every growing lad needs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just kind of to wrap things up, mm. like I ask this of everyone who I who I talk about the room with. Um, but what is your favourite scene in the room <laughs> or um, moment? See, it's favourite not because it's it's particular. Well, nothing, none of it's particularly good. But the uh, after he's gone mad, throwing everyone out, and he's just going around, just smashing stuff up and he wipes his arm along the top of the mm-hmm. fireplace and the end photo just knocks and lands on the camera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, because it's so close to the end and you've made it this far with just how shit it is. You've made it this far and then it's the first sort of moment that I, I've noticed in it where it's like, yeah, oh, this really is badly fucking made. You know, this 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 big picture, it's not a small picture either, it's a big fucking picture, and it just lands on the camera. And you're like, oh, fuck. You know, it's it's like, you know, when you watch um, parodies of making television and they have the, um, the boom mic come in the top of the shot on purpose and they have, like, bits of scene falling down. But that's that's on. They do that on purpose to to make it funny. Whereas this is, mm. you know, this obviously wasn't on purpose. But it's just it's just the perfect moment. It's you know, it symbolises all of the film <laughs> to me. Just this fucking picture just going over, not but yeah. not fully. Ah, uh, oh, brilliant! And everything yeah. after that moment was just fucking gold. The yeah, bit with the that's red one dress. Of my favorite mo- moments in the Disaster Artist, where they're filming the scene where he shoots himself yeah. and. Tommy insists on doing a take where he wakes up after shooting himself in the head. Yeah. <laughs> and, and carries on dying on and dry humping the dress that, that oh, he bought. Um, that's such yeah. a wonderful moment. Yeah, my favourite moment in the room is always, always, always um, the bit uh, which I can't understand. I still don't understand why it's in the film, 
Um, but the bit where the guy's getting the blowjob and yeah. he make, he's eating chocolate. He's eating he chocolate. And he's doing that fucking face. (laughs) And it's just like, there there was a point at which someone watched that and were like, yeah, cool. That's, that's what we wanted. (laughs) Let's like, so there was just so many choices in there that got us to that point. Like the actor thought, Oh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll I'll make this face while I'm kind of getting a blowy. And then, uh, he did it (laughs) and then they shot it. And then someone was like, cool. (laughs) That works. Right. Fine. But that must have been the comic relief. You know, yeah. considering this was the, this was meant to be a serious drama about friendship mm-hmm. and love and betrayal, that yeah. he was the comic relief in a film that is completely hilarious. Yeah, yeah, that it's, is exclusively it's comic relief. Exclusively comic relief, and then when he comes in again with me underpants, yeah, like, oh, <laughs> oh. yeah. Thanks so, for no, and we all thought that Tommy Rizzo had no lightness of touch or, or levity, but it turns <laughs> yeah. out that a film that does end with him blowing his own brains out does have its moments of uh, of, of kind of comedy. <laughs> oh, oh, it's so, oh, it's lovely. It's such yeah. a lovely film. I feel, I think, I feel more about it now, having seen Disaster Artist. Yeah, I've, I've kind of, I feel exactly the same, and like uh, I had got to the point where I was slightly jaded by the room. Whenever we did show it, mm. I would always we'd go up and do the intro and everything, and then we would just disappear. We'd go have something to eat, and then come back at the end for like the Q and A bit at the end, um, <laughs> because I, I, it's just like I've seen it so many, so many times. But like as soon as I got out of the disaster, it's the first thing I wanted to do is watch the room. Yeah. Which if 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 the if the disaster is going to do anything, like pointing more people towards. Um, the room is is actually a pretty pretty decent thing. Yeah, but it has to be ro- watched in the right way. Yeah, not yeah. sober, not sober, or on your own. No. <laughs> yeah, or you can be you can be on your own but not sober, or yeah. sober with other people. Yeah. Um, but you need to you need to cover at least one of those things up. Yeah. Yeah, you need to lock that down. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, that, that's the one thing. It might have like kind of reignited my affection. For for the film, and personally for me, the film is is something that kind of like like began friendships and stuff. And like you know, I, I'd screened it, and people came up to me afterwards and said, "Oh, I, you know, that's cool." And then I've gone on to become their friends, and they're still friends now. And it's uh, it's a thing that ultimately, what's you know, it's the the entire purpose of cinema is to turn the lights off and sit in a darkened room with a bunch of strangers and enjoy something communally. And and it's no greater exemplified by a communal screening of the room. Oh, absolutely. Ah, yes. Um, um, thanks to Louise for coming on and uh, spending the time to talk shit about <laughs> about, um, about the rumour film that she so passionately loves and uh, that I love as well. And uh, what I said towards the end of that is, is true. I'm kind of hankering for a screening of the room and uh, <laughs> having recently just talked about... Um, like uh, someone said, oh, what are you going to see at the cinema? And I said, oh, the disaster artist. And they were like, what's that? And you're like, well, there's this movie. And then like you're into a whole thing and they're like, oh, maybe I'll watch that maybe I'll infect a few more people. Mm. Yeah, it's very much like the video from The Ring. It's mm. like you watch it and then you just have to foist it upon other people, if only to kind of prove that what you have seen genuinely exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that, that is uh, the, the guys 
uh, who, who kind of first saw it, they kind of talk about themselves as being the, the kind of patient zeros of the, of the whole thing. That mm. is exactly what happened to them. One guy went to see that when it was on and during that week, and then he went and brought two guys back. And then by the end, they nearly filled a full screen. Most of that $1,800 was probably these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I kind of really forget the name. I really should know it. But um, they, by the end, they'd had like 20 or 30 people. And then that is when the, the kind of the legend was, was kind of uh, um, was made. So what about the room do you think, why do you think in particular that it has really caught on to such this extent? Because for me, what I, I can't say I like about it because it's, it, but like the, the stuff that fascinates about me about it are the fact that it is representative of a vision, mm-hmm. which is not something that, a lot of bad movies have it's also not actually a lot of bad movies do have a vision but it's usually kind of like a weird vision and this is a weird vision but like a lot of middling to mediocre or even good movies don't have a vision in the way that the room does and the the room's vision is in some ways kind of uh misogynistic and and, and hateful but mm-hmm. it is but but it's ineptitude does kind of inoculate you to that a little bit like the fact that it's so bizarrely constructed and written and shot does mean that the you know the women aid woman hating of it goes down a little smoother Mm. i think i think uh when you talk about bad movies in in the kind of uh i hate to say it but the kind of the so bad it's good type Mm. uh um kind of framework you have this thing where you, okay you watch this kind of shitty horror movie something like troll 2 uh, mm-hmm. and like okay it's supposed to be a horror movie they didn't know what they're doing and it's not scary and the fact that it's not scary is what's funny about it or it'll be like some kind of cult comedy which was supposed to be funny but it's not funny and now it's funny in an intentional way mm. the thing about the room is is you, you've no idea what they were going for yeah. and it's not like just it's not just a film that doesn't work it's a film that 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 is is kind of baffling to the point of like you question your own reality that like mm-hmm. that the people in a room or or you know just someone specifically put these things in order and expected them to be good no not just good but kind of groundbreaking and kind of uh, um up there with the works of the great american dramatists mm-hmm. and what came out was was not up there with the work of the great american dramatists um, and what what comes out is is still after I, I mean I I must have seen the film kind of like you know a dozen or so times, and I, st- I still go from scene to scene and think I don't know what what was what is happening here mm-hmm. <laughs> what I don't know what is going on and that is what fuels the desire to keep watching it because every every time you see it is like seeing it for the first time and you remember fuck this is happening on screen right now which means that. Like people were on the, the the set and they did this and they thought mm. it was okay or not okay, but they said okay, let's just move on. And I think that's in the the beginning of the disaster artist when you've got all the celebs talking about why they're so um, obsessed with the room. And Adam Scott says, if I had a time machine, I wouldn't go back to see like you know the Roman Empire or whatever. I'd go back to the room set just to see <laughs> what was happening. And I can really see that point of view because. It's so mystifying, just so mystifying as to how something so odd can happen um, unintentionally. Mm. 
I think one of the things I quite like about the disaster artist, disaster, disaster. I'm, I think I'll probably slip between different pronunciations over the course of this podcast. That's fine. Go ahead. Pure, purely because I've lived in America too long and it, it messes with your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the thing that one of the things I like about it is that even though it tells you kind of what happened, like the, the fact that when Tommy does his only he does his first scene which is him going up on the rooftop saying I did not hit her it's bullshit I did not oh hi Mark how it took him like 67 scenes or what takes or whatever to get it right and by the end of it like he's not it's not a good delivery but everyone's just so fucking happy that he got it mm. that they can just move on and like it explains okay that's how that happened but it still it doesn't really demystify the room as as a whole mm. like it basically tells you all of these these funny stories, and even compared to the book, it's still fairly kind of like it's only a thin slice of kind of the, the crazy things that they did. Mm. Um, but it does a good, it does a really good job of like even just incidentally explaining why does this movie look this way. It's like oh, because he decided because he has this bottomless pit of money that he's going to buy the cameras for the movie, even though you don't do that because it's insane to think that you would buy outright. Uh, equipment because you know when are you going to use it again <laughs> um, yeah. and it will uh, go out of date incredibly quickly mm, but not only did he buy the cameras he bought both digital and film because they presented the option to him and he just went both but he was like clearly having no idea about what he wanted to use and then that of course being an absolute disaster for the uh, the DP because it's like okay these two things that you have to shoot uh, you have to light very very differently we're going to be shooting with both at the same time so obviously it's going to look terrible um, I did like the fact that there was there's like explanation but not necessarily like I say not demystification of it mm, yeah um, and they kind of they spend I thought the film would get to the shooting of the room a lot quicker mm. um, before I went in and I'm really pleased that it didn't because I think it could have got tiresome quite quickly. And yeah. I think the fact that they build that relationship between Greg and Tommy. Um, so, cause I mean, that is something that like, like people still struggle to get their heads around is that Greg and Tommy are still really good friends because they're kind mm. of inseparable now bonded by the fact that they're in this, this film um, and they kind of need each other. And that comes across so well in the film. Yeah. I think the, casting of Dave Franco as Greg by James Franco I think really adds a lot to that because obviously there's the, the the metatextual subtext I guess of like these two guys who are bonded like brothers are played by actual brothers mm. uh, which is nice but also I think it means that you do kind of believe their chemistry with each other in that sense that they they know each other and and are really comfortable with each other even though one of them is like this complete weirdo who is uh awkward and strange but also kind of like fearless the creative or whatever uh and i think that 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 really comes through and is there's lots of kind of like clever casting in the movie like you and louise talked about how the, the the how did this get made guys are all in it and like that makes sense because they're all working actors but the fact that they're in this specific movie together is kind of like a clever nod for the people who are aware of like the call to the room and and bad movies in general but you know that that is not just kind of like clever that is you know a, a really smart you know artistically uh, a piece of casting 
Mm. I love uh, Zac Efron just popping up as as, mm. as the actor who plays Chris R. And uh, side note, the actor who plays Chris R. is an absolute sweetheart. Um, and uh, for one of our screenings, recorded a really amazing message. He's now, I think, he's now an American football agent. I think. Okay. Um, and yeah, he's he's like a really nice guy. Um, but I thought Zac Efron playing him was really funny. Um, mm. And also Nathan Fielder <laughs> yeah, in he a was... tiny, tiny role. Yeah. He was he was one of my favourites. I think it was also weird seeing him act because mm. I only really know him from Nathan for you, where he is putting on like a persona, but it's not that different from how he is in general. So it's it's a performance, but it's not acting. Whereas this was like he did have to act as a the actor in the movie, but then he also had to kind of replicate this the one of the many bizarre performances uh, in the movie. Uh, also, in terms of like the recreations that are shown at the end, like I thought they were kind of like funny, but they all, I also kind of thought, okay, I don't know if this needs to be going for quite as long. But what I found quite amusing about it was that it almost felt like the mirror image of Gus Van Zandt's Psycho, mm. where you're recreating these images precisely, but whereas Gus Van Zandt can't help but make Psycho a little worse. Because mm. even if he's doing all the same things, like he's just not. It's still kind of like too kind of academic and 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 kind of clinical or whatever. The cat, the crew of the disaster artist can't help but make those scenes from the room even marginally better, <laughs> because they're better actors. And even if they're trying to recreate bad performances, it's kind of hard for them to do. It's such a weird trick. Um, this, of course, is best uh, exemplified by the sex scene and the fact that you know. Uh, Tommy, you know, uh, James Franco, you know, transforms himself to try and look and sound and act like Tommy Wiseau, but he still has a slightly nicer ass than Tommy Wiseau. So. <laughs> yeah, there's no getting away from that. Yeah, even in an awkward scene like that where it's meant to be disgusting, you kind of think this is still a a pretty big step up from <laughs> the original version of this scene. Mm, yeah, Louise mentioned it that they'd done a great job of kind of uh, of making his eye, his left eye, mm. kind of like the, the sufficient amount of sleepy to be Tommy Wiseau, but they um, they could have put a bit more veins <laughs> on his uh, on yes. his body for those uh, sex scenes. But I, I mean, that that those kind of scenes, the, t- the two scenes where they're filming the sex scene and they're filming the scene on the rooftop where um, Greg tells him. Uh, Tommy, the story of a girl that ended up in hospital, but he keeps laughing, yeah. but on purpose, which is all done in one take. They, they do mm. three takes of the scene, but in one continuous unbroken take, which is a really nice way of approaching that. Those two film, those two scenes were kind of the high point uh, uh, of the of the movie for me, and also. Like I, I, when I heard that, that Franco was doing it, and when when I, even when I kind of saw the trailers and stuff, I just thought this is pretty much just going to be an out and out comedy, but mm. it really does mine. Um, uh, kind of the emotions like way more than I thought it would and uh, in a way that I kind of thought James Franco probably wouldn't have bothered with I thought he'd just be more mm. interested in the fact that it was a thing about a thing <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah uh, he, he seems to be someone who is who is either kind of like kind of artistically frantically doing something new that's kind of explosive and, and weird or he's kind of I think you said it once stoned and bored mm-hmm. um, which uh, it's very difficult to, to tell what you're going to get but this seems to be like a really good fit for his material and, and he seems passionate about it and that really comes across in the film. Yeah, I think he, in, in, you know, you uh, and Louise briefly mentioned Ed Wood. I think 
one of the things that makes Ed Wood so great and that, that shares with this is that you do get a sense that Tim Burton has a real affinity for Edward, even though Tim Burton is a lot is a much better filmmaker than Edward was, and James Franco is a marginally better filmmaker <laughs> than Tommy Wee Service. That's um, harsh. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this: apart from the Disaster Artist, there are no James Franco films that I've seen that I would choose to watch over watching The Room. Not because they are technically worse, but just because they're less interesting. They are, <laughs> they are, they are, they are like more insufferable <laughs> for different yes. reasons. Although um, no one's still seen that 40 minutes of Blood Meridian that he shot with Scott Glenn yeah. and Dave Franco. Before someone said to him, uh, you don't actually own the rights to this. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with Ed Wood, like he, because of his relationship with Vincent Price uh, to, at the start of his career, um, he kind of really related to Ed Wood and his relationship with Bela Lugosi, but also just in general as a as a kid who had like grown up making short films, you know, growing up in California and being surrounded by the film industry, you can really get a sense that he has this real affection. He has this real kinship with Edward as just someone who loves movies and just wants to make movies. The fact that he, for a time, was was very good at that is kind of incidental. He sees a kindred spirit there, and I think with Tommy and James Franco, he sees him as someone who is just like or at least was when this happened, was just, like, fiercely creative. Like, you see that in him doing uh, a performance from A Streetcar Named Desire where he just screams Stella over and over again, rives on the floor, climbs up on a bit of scaffolding um, because he just wants to create, you know. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if what he's doing is technically acting. He just wants to create, and you can see that in, in James Franco and the fact that you get a sense that he just wants to try his hand at everything, and he's he's not very good at most of it, <laughs> but at least he tries, uh, and he has a, a sense of abandon that you wouldn't expect from someone who looks like James Franco, who could very easily have settled into a career of just playing kind of like pretty boys, uh, and just being kind of a blandly handsome actor. Instead, after being in three of the biggest movies of all time in the Spider-Man trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, kind of decided he was going to like take a part on a soap opera or teach writing or do art installations and things like that. You do get a sense that he is someone who sees in Tommy someone who has a similar drive to just do things. Mm. Yeah, whether or not they're any good at them mm. is uh, is quite another matter. I think a very interesting parallel to um, Edward is the fact that they're both very sympathetic portrayals, even though at times the characters do behave very poorly. Mm. Um, in the the fact that Edward, in real life, uh, had you know a kind of like pretty depressing descent into alcoholism and um, kind, of, uh, kind of sketchy porno movies towards the end mm. of his career, they choose to kind of depict him purely as a kind of a giddy enthusiast that just wants everyone to get there and have a great time and get his movie on the screen. And he believes, like you know, sincerely that his film and his vision is 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 you know artistically you know fantastic. Mm. In this similar vein, you know, Tommy is presented as a a literal force of of nature who will mm-hmm. get his vision on screen through sheer force of personality and can convince Greg that he is you know a brilliant actor just by making him do something stupid in a in a coffee shop or mm. you know can convince people to do things that that you know that other kind of lesser beings couldn't and I, th- and I think that's 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 like a very interesting parallel between the two in that they could easily have made a film that focused on far more negative aspects of both char- of both real people mm. and i think 
Uh, I, I really like that coffee scene just because it, it does something which I should be cringing from mm-hmm. because uh, I'm just a very anxious person and like the idea of just imagining being someone who sat in that in that coffee bar whilst these two people are screaming lines from a play at each other just fills me with like a real deep existential dread but the fact that uh, it works and that it ends with Tommy just kind of like saying like you're very lucky to get today you don't have to pay for this <laughs> um, was really funny to me um, I think uh, one of the, the big differences and you kind of touched on it there in terms of like it being such a positive portrayal is like the big difference between this and Ed Wood obviously is that when Ed Wood was made uh, Ed Wood the man had been dead for like 30 years mm-hmm. and so it's you don't have to really consider the kind of slow depressing kind of slide of his life whereas for me and I, I I left the movie and I'd been entertained by it but I just left feeling like really melancholy and just kind of like walking around the food court of a mall just with you know my head down thinking that some Charlie Brown music should be playing mm-hmm. um, being like thinking about you know this depiction of this guy who had a vision who wanted to make a movie who wanted to make a movie with his friend who like genuinely believed he had talent or that he had something worth saying then having this afterlife of his career where essentially he has had tremendous success from the fact that everyone tells him all the time that his movie is terrible (laughs) and thinking that there must be something even though obviously he's had success with it and he seems you know to really enjoy it there must be something like weirdly soul crushing in that and you do see that in the final scene where they show the movie for the first time and as the premiere is going along people suddenly start you know uh it uh, breaking out into laughter and hysterics and they're falling about by the end and Tommy leaves because it's so kind of heartbreaking to him and then Dave uh, Dave, uh, Greg <laughs> comes in and and like says to him hey you know you, you're giving these people a good time you know people, most people don't get to do this for other people and kind of putting a positive spin on it but I did leave just kind of thinking that there must be think with a, a renewed sense of sympathy and empathy for Tommy Wiseau that I hadn't really had before yeah um and i didn't expect it to go there because he Mm. obviously in real life made the turn from someone who was constantly saying his film was going to be considered for oscars to then all of a sudden (laughs) saying it was um an intentional black comedy yeah um and that's i thought how how are they going to kind of explain that shift and they they do it really well i mean i'm pretty sure it wasn't that instantaneous yeah. And from kind of what I've read, not that many people turned up to the uh, to the to the premiere, and I'm sure it didn't quite go down like that. But I think that was a really good way of of dramatically portraying that, because if you don't if you don't uh, give up that part of yourself that isn't willing to laugh, a little bit of your soul must die every time someone mm. tells you your film sucks when you put yeah. everything into it. That's so clearly autobiographical. Yeah, I think it's it's truthful without in fact being true that scene mm. in that it essentially boils down the entire cult and the afterlife of the room down to a sort of like a five minute period of yeah. initial initially people being horrified and rejecting it and then coming to accept it and accept tommy as a cult figure as a result which is like you know kind of the, the positive uplifting story to it which is always always going to be tinged by the sense of melancholy of like this guy's entire persona is built upon uh, this colossal failure <laughs> that uh, ended up kind of doing a, a, a conceptual jujitsu and becoming a, like a huge success, but at, you know, at what cost fame? Mm. 
Yeah, but then neither Greg nor Tommy probably would be famous now had oh no you know they not made that film they they I mean I think Greg was in Patch Adams I think um, and mm-hmm. had been in a couple of other smaller movies but you know there's have you said there's a petition to get them to present an Oscar <laughs> which I think would be amazing uh, but also just when I started my own personal journey inside the room mm-hmm. did not think that at any point we would be talking about the li- the likelihood of Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero presenting an Oscar um, or, or even or just the... getting to attend which yeah. is likely if the movie continues to you know to be a success and continues to get good reviews and with the expanded field of best pictures you know it's it's got a good shot of getting in there yeah i, I think it's probably um it's probably going to be a lock for the, the golden globes the best like, comedy section mm. um i think maybe adapted screenplay for oscar um i'm kind of not sure where the acting side would, would fit in i think franco has a shot I but mean, would he be actor or supporting? Because he's kind of the lead, but then also he's a, a character that looms over the film rather than, you know, be, he, I mean, Greg is the main character in the movie. Like, I think he's he's a lead in the same way Forrest Whitaker is the lead in The Last King of Scotland. Right, in okay. He is a very significant figure, but he's also showier. So even though you could technically argue that he is the supporting character because he... You know, Greg is the one with the arc essentially, and he's the kind of the the the, the point of view character into Tommy's crazy world. Um, yeah, Tommy is the the bigger the bigger role. So if mm. they were to both get if if A twenty four are pushing for any kind of acting Oscars, I would say that they'll probably push him for lead. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I mean. It's a weird one, and again another parallel with with Edward. The you know you know a, a really good movie made about a bad movie, uh, mm. kind of doing really well uh, critically and commercially, which is really pleasant to see. Because uh, and 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 like I said, I am just pleased that I'm like I kind of got a bit jaded with the room and kind of would be happy if I never saw it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm kind of ready to dip my toe in now. And then I could be one of those guys who'd be like, oh, God, I was into it before you guys. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? A whole five years after it became the phenomenon <laughs> that it was. Yeah. Uh, I I will always have a great deal of affection for The Room purely because the review I wrote of it is the most read thing I've ever written on my blog. Oh. Uh, I think purely, I, I have to assume purely because, A, not that many people have actually bothered to sit down and write a review of The Room, um, but also because... Uh, is that thing where people just kind of like search for images from the room and it somehow ends up on my blog. But mm. um, I've always, that always uh, amuses me that, you know, of all of the films I've spent a lot more time kind of really kind of thinking about and trying to write some sort of like great insights. The article I wrote where I was just kind of talking about at why this bad movie is fascinating uh, is the one that people seem to have uh, constantly looked at over and over for pretty much 10 years at this point because I think I wrote that review in like 2008, 2009. Mm, the most read review I ever wrote was um, for the film John Carter and mm-hmm. it wasn't a particularly well-read written review of course because I wrote it but like <laughs> I think I used the phrase Taylor Kitsch 
plays John Carter with shirtless abandon. <laughs> and, um, like, I would, you know, maybe get a thousand hits on an article. Like, maybe. Mainly it was in the hundreds. But this one had, like, 25,000, like, hits. And then I would look at the the kind of uh, the SEO, like, stats mm-hmm. of, like, how people were finding my website and the number one search of Taylor Kitt shirtless <laughs> would just drive, I presume... Uh, droves of, of of like teenage girls to my my blog in which I talk about how John Carter isn't a very good film, um, but yes, right Taylor Kitt shirtless. <laughs> there you go. That's how you, that's how you drive the traffic. Accidental clickbait is the only honest form of writing on the internet. I think where yeah. you you stumble across a term that is uh, is gold in SEO terms, but you don't actually push it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so I think. The disaster artist, I think we would both say we're pro. Yeah, I'm for it. Um, I, I you know, thought it was jolly good fun, but with uh, surprising, surprising emotional depth. And uh, it has been a pretty decent hit so far out the gate. It's currently, uh, this weekend it had its, it's not its wide weekend in the US, but a wide release opening because it only opened to like 800 theatres, but from those 800 it earned 6.4 million, which is pretty good for a, a comedy that cost $10 million, which ironically is only slightly more when you adjust for inflation than what the room cost allegedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has 8 million in total so far, which seems like a pretty good footing for it going forward if it wants to be a serious Oscar contender. So, uh, you know, it's nice to see a good film doing well, even uh, though the long journey it took to the screen starts with uh, a toxic friendship and a truly, truly bafflingly bad film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we end this episode as we end every episode with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we enjoyed this week and that we think that you, the listeners, would enjoy. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners? Um, I kind of just, I've not really seen a lot this week, but I will uh, go to one of my favorite movies, uh, which is also about the making of a terrible film. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about it before, um, but I'm going to recommend that you guys check out Living in Oblivion, mm. um, the uh, the Tom DeCillo film from, uh, I think, 94, 95, um, where Steve Buscemi and a cast of uh, 90s character actors <laughs> um, make, uh, attempt to make an indie movie um, where everything that can go goes wrong can go wrong does go wrong um but in it, not in a kind of like uh a fast well it's actually very fast score yeah. uh, there's a dwarf in it uh, it's peter dinklage mm-hmm. uh, in an early role and yeah it's just full of all those great actors dermot mulroney uh catherine keener james legros playing one of my favorite characters of all time chad palomino the actor that is definitely not based on brad pitt mm-hmm. um and yeah it's a absolutely fucking hilarious film uh, about trying to make a film, uh, although this one is fictional, but it is no less hilarious. Um, so, yeah, if you can find it, watch it. Yeah, or if you can't find it, because I think it's one of those movies that's weirdly hard to find, um, although not as hard as In the Soup, which I think is one that is pretty much lost at this point if you don't own a DVD, which is a shame. Mm, I've got it. Yeah, so, so I might, might put it on eBay. Rob, Rob Matt's sweet, sweet point, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think... It's, if if you can't uh, find the whole movie, definitely watch uh, Peter Dinklage's scenes because uh, it's really funny, but also it's really interesting seeing him at this point because in that movie he's playing a role which is pointedly making fun of the kind of typecasting that he was then fight against for his entire career and then kind mm. of find tremendous success by slightly playing into with Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to recommend 
two things because they're both short. So I'm kind of bending the rules. One of which is David Ehrlich's top five, uh, top 25, sorry, films of 2017 video. Uh, David Ehrlich is a, a writer, I believe, currently for IndieWire. He's written for a bunch of places online. And every year he does these top 25 countdowns where uh, he takes... Uh, clips from movies from the year and sets them to songs from films during the year including uh, Corona's Rhythm of the Night which is used to memorable effect in The Disaster Artist um, for this year's video and this one is is a lot of fun and it's a really good uh, if you're thinking about what you need to catch up on before the end of the year and you know before people start crowning uh, movies the best of the year his, that's always a good place to start and, and the best thing about it being video countdown is uh, you get to see these movies in actions and if there's something from it that really kind of jumps out at you you can make think oh i didn't know what this movie was or what it was about but something about this is really captivating as happened with me and uh, the movie the lure which is a i believe a polish musical about mermaid which i knew nothing about but i now feel uh, honor bound to seek out because it looks absolutely bananas uh, mm. so i'm going to recommend that and then i'm also going to recommend um I'm going to uh, have an anti-recommendation of I, Tonya, which I don't think people should... I mean, no, people can go and watch it if they want. I didn't particularly enjoy it, but um, yeah, the, you know, the, there's this movie about Tonya Harding that's out at the moment, and weirdly, kind of side to that, uh, Sufjan Stevens put out a song about Tonya Harding, which uh, supposedly he wrote for the film and which was rejected, which makes sense because it's a very kind of lovely and melancholy and lilting song uh very much in the style that anyone who's listened to stuff Jan Stevens' stuff uh you know will be familiar with and which makes no sense in kind of a sub David O. Russell uh uh fictional uh, uh biopic but uh the thing about it that that's really special is that he also did a video for it and the video is basically Tanya Harding's performance I think the 1991 US skating championship where she did the triple axel for the first time and you know did this amazing performance and there's something just like really beautiful about this incredibly melancholy song about you know Tonya Harding almost as a folk figure playing over this video of her at her apotheosis where she was like at the absolute peak of her power recognized as one of the best in the world and then it all you know kind of didn't work out for her um but it's a, a video that I find like incredibly moving and I think everyone should take you know just five minutes uh, and watch it and uh, then do what I've done which is watch it pretty much every day since then because I think it's mm-hmm. uh, it's really beautiful and also uh, new Sufjan is always good uh, and uh, as I think some people have been saying they can try and claim this is his Oregon record <laughs> because yeah. at the very least it's about someone famous from Oregon yeah he still owes his 47 states yep uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, if you enjoyed this show, please rate us and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. Recommend us to your friends. That's the, the best way for us to grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, probably something Star Wars related, because uh, there's a new one out. But Is there? Yeah. Uh, I hope you got your tickets. Mm, nah, I might catch on Netflix. Yeah, just show up on the door, you'll be fine. Um, yeah. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.